This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> Direct, we beseech you, O Lord, all of our actions, so that with wisdom and right judgment all things may begin in you, and in you come to perfection through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. Now there is no competition, but Sister had two books that she showed, so I had to bring in two books, of course. All right? And though I will leave them here for you to look at, they're kind of, they're more mangled. They're not as uh, untouched, uh, because Sister has brand new ones that she's showing you. The first is a very important document. The uh, sayings of the Desert Fathers that are in the two volumes here, of course, are very precious, uh, a very precious document. They tell you what the fathers of the desert thought about the spiritual life, the monastic life, asceticism. But they don't tell you a whole lot about what the monastic life was like. There is another document, as, uh, of course, um, as the fourth century moves into the fifth century, other documents begin to appear about monasticism. Sister referenced last night uh, Athanasius's Life of Antony of the Desert. But there is at the end of the fourth century another uh, text called The Lives of the Desert Fathers, which tells you in anecdotal form what, the, what life in the monasteries was like. And so I, it's the companion volume in a way to this and has the same uh, translator and uh, 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 an Anglican nun, Sister Benedicta Ward, uh, who's uh, an Oxford Don. This is a copy of John Cashin's Institutes. Uh, I, the, the, the conferences, of course, are like a big fat volume that did not fit in my suitcase. But the, you know, if you're interested, you can look at this uh, just for your, so I feel we're even now, sister. <laughs> okay. As you might guess from what sister said last night, the men and women at the, in, the, in the second and third century who began to feel drawn to a more intense life of union with God were highly, they were idealists. And of course, as you know, uh, I presume that a lot of you are idealists, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Idealists are at one and the same time both having a high ideal and being what today would be called in polite society prophetic, that is critical. You know, they know what's wrong with everything and they're dissatisfied because the present conditions don't facilitate their attainment of the ideal. Have you ever felt this way, maybe? Yeah, I think so. Okay, well this was true uh, for the earliest monks and nuns, and their antecedents, which we call the Christian ascetics. They were, they were very concerned that the Christian church to which they were committed did not facilitate this yearning that they had for a deeper life of union with God. And so they began to turn to the scriptures to find some, you might say, legitimization of their, of their uh, vision. And of course, they found it in the book of the Acts of the Apostles especially in the second chapter, verses 42 through 46, wherein the life of the community at Jerusalem, uh, led by the apostles, was organized. And as that text tells us, all things were held in common, and things were distributed to everyone, not according to their desires, but according to their needs. So not everybody got the same thing. This ideal of the apostolic community 
will live on in the Christian church through the centuries. It's very often called the, the apostolic life or the apostolic way of life or the life of, of, of the community of Jerusalem. This, of course, became then for the would-be monks and nuns and then the early monks and nuns a kind of ideal towards which they wanted to uh, turn their lives. In, in addition to that, there was, of course, not only this kind of yearning for an external structure context in which to pursue their ideal or their dream, but there was also this deep uh, yearning of the heart. They wanted a, a, a more intimate relationship with God. And they began to take, of course, St. Paul's words very seriously, pray without ceasing. And accompanying the apostolic life, they began to long for and articulate a desire for a life wherein there could be prayer without ceasing or the perpetual awareness of God. As many of the fathers would say in describing Christ, he was always ad patrim. He was always aware of the Father. He had a consciousness of God at every moment of his life. And so these early ascetics and early uh, monks and nuns, the early hermits, they all had this, this ideal before them that they wanted to find a way to begin to set out on this journey. And it's, there, was a, there was a real uh, urgency and a certain excitement about it, which is why, as a sister I thought very well uh, described, there was this radicality in the things that the fathers of the uh, desert, the fathers and mothers of the desert, expressed in the, uh, and are preserved in the say, their sayings. There is, um, yeah, okay. Now, um, what, I, what I would say is that uh, these men and women came together and began to literally try to organize a way of life that would facilitate this dream. And so they came together very optimistically. You know, this is great. And they understood that human beings, because there was a kind of cultural anthropology afoot, they understood that human beings have different parts. There's your head, your head, your mind, your intellect. And then there's your heart, your, your will. And these two things work together, one feeding off the other, one informing the other. But sometimes, of course, it doesn't work that way, right? Because sometimes you know what is right and good. And when things are OK, you choose what is right and good. And you have peace. But sometimes the head and the heart declare a little independence from one another. And so you know what is right and good, but you choose to do what's bad. And so what happens? Chaos. There can be no peace. The entrance into monastic life was very much about the search for peace as a kind of personal interior experience that would facilitate this traveling uh, to the heights of union with God. Um, now, what of course happened, literally, is that when they came together to form these communities, they found out that it wasn't so easy as they had thought, because they discovered that they were living with other people whose wills and intellects weren't always in, in, in conformity to one another. And they also found, surprisingly, that they met with these holy people, and they didn't like them. They, there, were, there was tension. There were problems. Imagine, you know? I don't know if you've ever lived with a holy person, I have certainly lived with a few, and some of them were real stinkers, you know? I mean, <laughs> uh, you don't lose your personality in being transformed into God's, uh, in, into an image of, of God in Christ. The consequence was that they began to reason, well, what, what causes this? 
And they, they came to see that a lot of the difficulties that entered into their lives came not from the mind and the will or the intellect and the heart, but from emotions, how you feel. So very often they understood that they were deceived or uh, what would you say, um, seduced by their own emotions. So you meet someone and you say, oh, what a weirdo, right? I mean, five minutes after you've met somebody, it's like, I'm getting away from him for the weekend. Yeah, no one here, I'm sure, has that experience. But then, you know, and if you live with a person all the time, you'd say, when there's a problem, I knew that. I saw that right at the beginning. Uh, oh, he should have, you know, and in the context of a monastery, you could say, well, he should have been thrown out in the beginning. I knew that he was crazy, or I knew that he wasn't going to cooperate, or I knew that he was going to be a big pain for me to live with. He's just not suited for our life. And so many times this experience surfaced that they began to think about, to ruminate, to reason how this could be addressed and overcome. And that's at the root of much of the sayings of the Desert Fathers that we heard about last evening. The first step they discovered in trying to figure out the solution to this difficulty was to come to know oneself, especially to come to know the difficulties in oneself. And there were certain, what would we say, universal truths that they came to articulate as typical of all human persons. And one that is repeated in the sayings of the Desert Fathers and again in the uh, history of the, of the desert of the uh, monasteries in Egypt is that most of us would rather appear to be good than to be good. When you think about how often during the day you have thoughts such as, if I do this, my professor will think that. If I do this, my mother will be happy. If, my, if I do this, my father won't be happy. If I do this, my friends will think I'm blah, 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 blah. And you, you know, we all have tapes that, that, of course, tapes aren't, I suppose we'd have to find a new term for that. It, it, and when you run through your tape, what do you push? Rewind, it all goes off again. And so, you know, what develops is what the, what the desert calls the distinction between the true self and the false self. The monastic life is really about the struggle to discover the truth about the self before God and to kill off what is false and to nurture and to prepare to be reborn in Christ in the true self. And this was a tough struggle. Not too long ago, um, I, I, just a couple of weeks ago, I preached a 40 hours devotion in a parish in Virginia. And after the mass one day, this woman came up to me and she said, oh, Father, very pious lady and you know, holy and all this. And she said, uh, <laughs> I guess you've gathered already. I'm not very pious. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> but she said, Father, thank you for praying the mass. I could see that you're deeply spiritual by the way you said the mass. And, you know, I, I think you're probably a saint. <laughs> and I said, uh, I'm sorry to disabuse you, but I just couldn't wait to get out of there. I had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> she kind of looked at me like, she, cr she crumbled, you know. <laughs> uh, and I, I left her behind me, but <laughs> I was busy going somewhere. <laughs> It was very tempting for me to say to her, thank you. 
<laughs> I'm a wonderful Dominican friar. And priests, please spread the word. <laughs> the truth is, I'm not a saint. I'm just an ordinary person who turned out to be old and fat and white-haired. What are you going to do about it? You know? Humility, which is the foundation stone of the monastic spirituality, in fact, it's the foundation stone of all Christian spirituality, is about, is about ruthless truth about the self before God. And in order for the monks and the nuns to begin the journey towards intimacy with God, they desperately needed to face the truth. And that meant that they had to face the terrible truth that they preferred often to appear to be something that they were not, rather than to spend the energy to actually be good. You see, because it takes a lot more energy to actually try to be something authentically than to create a persona or an image. Most of us spend a lot of time trying to um, create a persona. I remember, I, 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 call to, I recall when I was a novice, so that's, that was literally in another century. Uh, the, one of the first uh, conferences that the novice master gave to us, what we call the chapter talk, was about becoming a saint. And he explained that if you want to become a saint, you have to choose that. It has to be your desire, and you choose it. And so uh, I thought, I went into the choir, where you know, we had adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, and I said, I'm, I'm going to choose to be a saint. That's my decision. And of course, the kind of saint I wanted to be, I wasn't really one of these wonderful stained glass windows like you have in the chapel of the apostles. Uh, you know, I didn't want to have a halo or anything. I just wanted to be the kind of saint that everyone would just recognize and turn to and seek wisdom and look to me to solve the problems of the world and of course eventually facilitate world peace. You know, that's always the stereotype. And you know, I actually spent several years of my life thinking that I could do that. And then somewhere along the line in my formation, things happened that I began to realize, uh-oh, it ain't happening. <laughs> I'm just living this dream. And I began to realize especially from other people's reactions to me, that I wasn't this wonderful person that I pretended to be. Just a simple, ordinary, not so simple, but an, a complicated, ordinary person. And that's where you have to begin. And as you read the little book on um, Heaven Begins Within You, it's one of the themes that you're going to bump into, that you have to begin with the truth of what you're not, you're not as much as what you are. And you have to begin to understand and name the true self and the false self. The life of union with God begins with our brokenness and with what we're missing as much as it does with our faith in God's grace. Because God's grace moves us to face the truth. God loves the person that we are, not the person that we pretend to be. Because you can spend a lot of your life trying to get yourself worthy so that God will love me. If I get over this sin, if I get a good spiritual director, if I discern the right vocation, then I will have something to offer God. I can give him the gift of myself. And that's, of course, completely wrong because God loves me, loves you exactly as you are. And very often, the most frequently lie that the devil tells us is that God will only love us once we get our lives straightened out. But of course, you know, who is Christ closest to? The poor, the lowly, the brokenhearted. 
He did not come to save the, the healthy, but the doctor. If you're already healthy, you don't need him. And thus, the, the, the journey of the monastic life is not only a journey into self-knowledge, it is also a journey into dependence on someone else. And that someone else, of course, as we'll talk about later in this afternoon, is Jesus Christ. This is not an easy thing to do. It's much more difficult to make this interior journey than it is to learn how to sleep on a bed of boards or to eat a particular diet that is very sparse or to keep vigils and deprive yourself of sleep or other worldly pleasures. This is the real work. And all of these external forms or structures are meant to foster and sustain this inner journey. And the inner journey will go on long after you can no longer, through sickness or old age, hang on to these observances, these practices. There, it's the inner self that has to engage with God. Purity of heart, which is the goal of the monastic life in order to lead us to the kingdom of heaven, that means a heart that has been purified by facing the truth about the self, the ruthless truth about the self, and then accepting that truth. Because, of course, when you first see the truth about yourself, you know, I, I can remember as a young person, uh, one of my brothers once saying to me, uh, you know, I, I think you're, he, I don't, don't remember exactly what he said, but he told me what he thought of me. And I, of course, I was furious because he thought I was uncooperative or something. And then when I went away and thought about it, I thought, gosh, he's right. And, and when I went back to him and said, um, you know, uh, you were really right about that. And he said, what I've heard, not often, but several times in my life, well, then why aren't you different if you know it? I don't know. Why am I not? Can I just say, I'm not going to be, I'm going to be more cooperative. I'm going to be nicer. I'm not. I, I can't, and I don't know. Well, I do know because, of course, I've spent a lot of years figuring it out. But you see, it's a very difficult thing. You can't just choose to be different. You have to allow God to love you as you are. And that's what the monks and the nuns discovered. And as they discovered this interior freedom to be themselves, you might say they could recognize God being himself, loving them as he is, love, rather than he, him trying to fix you. Not too long ago, um, on a, an airplane, a man said to me, we were talking, uh, uh, and he said, well, you know, he, he used this phrase, which of course is slang for I don't go to mass anymore. I was raised a Catholic, and that's the <laughs> I know what that means. And so he said, when I said, well, why, what, what's the problem? He said, I'm very disillusioned with the Catholic Church. Oh, OK. Yeah, most of the Catholics that I know, they don't, they don't, they don't live up to their, religious, their religion. They don't follow the rules. They, they, you know, they practice birth control, they premarital, the whole list. And I, I, I tried to explain to him, well, Catholicism isn't really a religion for behavior modification. I mean, Christ didn't found the church so that everybody would be good. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, Christ, the church is for the people who aren't good. Those are the people, the people that you disapprove of, they're the ones that are the most important people in the Church of Christ because they're the ones that he came to save. And he kind of, you know, I always think of that image from The Wizard of Oz, of course, where, the, you know, the, the wicked witch melts. He kind of melted, and, and he, he said, well, uh, gratefully, he said to me before we left, he said, do you have an email address? Which is always dangerous. <laughs> but I gave it to him. And we have, 
in, in, for about a year after this happened, we kept correspondence, and eventually, thank God, he went back to Mass, which means he went to confession. That was code language, too, you know. When he told me he'd gone back to Mass, I knew that he had managed to go to confession. You see, the Catholic Church is about, it is not about behavior modification. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that relationship produces the grace needed to modify one's behavior. But if, it, if you don't have the relationship, what have you got? You get, you know, you get your checklist of things that you're supposed to do. If you're a good boy or a good girl, I was a very good Catholic boy, I can tell you that. I, didn't, I, I checked all the boxes. And it didn't get me very much. It certainly didn't get me happiness. And the first time that I had any insight that there was more to the faith was when I became a Dominican. And very soon after I entered the order, we were told, God wants you to be a saint. I was like, what? I thought I was just supposed to be good, loyal, true. You know, all the things that Boy Scouts are. I was that as a Catholic. But the idea that there was this relationship of intimacy had never been addressed in my formation. And of course, I'm from that wonderful period of Catholicism in the 20th century, the 1940s and 50s. And, you know, so that shows you how perfect that was. <laughs> it wasn't perfect. Christianity is about a relationship. The monastic life is about a relationship. The spirituality of the desert is about a relationship, a relationship in which there can be growth into God through authentically becoming oneself. One enters a monastery in order to become someone. And who is, what is that someone? That someone is my true self, as I really am. And having the courage to believe that God loves me as I am, rather than thinking that he is going to be constantly expecting me to follow certain rules to achieve, to achieve or attain his love. We cannot earn his love. His love is given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith empowers us. It enables us to begin to make choices that are in line with the way in which the mind and the heart agree. This is what Cashin in his first conference says about the struggle to attain purity of heart. For the sake of this, then, everything is to be done and desired. For its sake, solitude is to be pursued. For its sake, we know that we must undertake fasts, vigils, labors, bodily deprivation, readings, and other virtuous things, so that by them we may be able to acquire and keep a heart untouched by any harmful passion. That's what a pure heart is, a heart untouched by any harmful passion. And so that by taking these steps, we may be able to ascend to the perfection of love. You see, the goal is not just to get myself straightened up. This is not a self-help program. It is about, it's a relationship program. And it's about the perfection of love. So that as St. Thomas would say, that we begin to see all things from God's point of view. We look upon our neighbor and even the people that we don't like, and we see them as God sees them. We recognize that God loves them. And therefore we begin to be converted. We start to at least let people be themselves, if not encourage them to be themselves for our sake. It's, a, it's, an, a, it's an experience that Catherine of Siena, of course, learned. Um, she was a very loving person. In fact, Catherine was one of these people who 
really consumed the world with love. But she met once or twice people that she didn't love, she didn't even like. And one time when she complained to God about this, that she just couldn't find within herself the charity to love her neighbor, God said in response, Catherine, don't worry. You don't have that charity, you don't have that love, borrow mine, I've got plenty. And you see, this is really, you might say, the Thomistic insight that real charity, real charity in the soul, real holiness and perfection is about seeing things from God's point of view, thinking about things as God thinks about them, choosing the things that God chooses. It's being deified. But in the desert tradition, it's very practical. You see, it isn't, it isn't just set in, um, in um, obscure terms. The struggle between the true and the false self then means that we must begin by learning the way of humility. In the desert tradition, there are several symbols that express this. One is that sometimes the heart in, uh, is, is, is pictured with a, a serpent around it. And the serpent, of course, is pride, which is the opposite of, of humility. And the serpent can strangle the heart if the true self is not strong, then one can lose one's way. The other image, of course, is the, the single eye. The monk or the nun has only one eye in the middle of the forehead. And that's because he or she is always looking at God. Withdrawal from the world, the fuga mundi, is not so much a flight from as it is a flight to. That is, as Sister mentioned this uh, last night, the early monks and nuns, they didn't think that they were great heroes or, 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 or strong people. They huddled together in monasteries because they thought that they were weak. And they knew that they could not survive this ideal. They could not preserve the ideal and survive their intended uh, pursuit of holiness in the secular world. And so they withdrew, you might say, and came together in their humble weakness. And so the monastery became a safe place where you could actually be someone who wasn't already perfect. And certainly your generation should appreciate this because you know, your, your generation seems to be plagued more than any other before you with the need to be perfect already. I mean, you know, you, success and perfection seem to be uh, very important for you people, okay. What are the evidences of the false self? Well, in the tradition, uh, and you can read this in the conference at the um, Institutes of John Cashin, there came to be enumerated a number of faults. Now, the, 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 the seven or the eight faults that came to be enumerated in the monastic tradition really are, you know, it's not meant to be a definitive list. It's not a comprehensive list. It's really a statement of, of attitudes and, and you might say wrong-headed values. And the list, of course, is fairly simple. Uh, as it's found in John Cashin, uh, it, it is first gluttony then fornication, then avarice, then anger, and then John Cashin added uh, sadness, very interesting, sadness, and asadia, which is spiritual tepidity, spiritual boredom, and then vainglory, and finally pride. Now, you know, you can use those as a kind of examination of conscience, I suppose, but it's to miss the point that it really is meant to, experience, to express the roots of things, of the, of the disorders that you'll find in yourself. 
And depending upon how thoroughgoing is your thought, because see, this tradition is really, it's not just about the austerities of the external life of the monastery. It's really about what goes on up here and then how that moves the will. You, you, you have to ponder, you have to think, and you can think, you can, you can figure a lot of things out. I said that there's the intellect and the will and then the emotions, which mess things up almost always. But then there's another element which doesn't come from us, and that is grace. You see, because when you live this way of life, wherein you have taken on the life of prayer and the sacraments and a certain life of, of, of asceticism, God gives gifts, God gives helps. That's what grace means. That, that therefore, as we think and ponder and struggle to choose, God comes and leads down towards the lowly and the poor. And no one should be poorer than the monk or the nun because he or she claims to be nothing but who one is. And that's the great freedom of the monastic life. You don't have to prove anything to anybody unless you foolishly try to, to prove something to your neighbor or to your superior. But even that, after a life, I think if you ever, I don't know how many of you know any monks or nuns, but I can certainly testify to this, that the, the, the contemplative religious that I have known over my lifetime are probably the most authentic people that I have met because they, they've come to realize there's no point in them trying to achieve anything because it isn't going to happen. It is a life which really does not offer a whole lot of TLC, or that's not TAC, that's TLC. Uh, uh, it, does, it doesn't offer a lot of, of affirmation, and it, it's a difficult life because everyone is struggling to face the truth about themselves and become vulnerable to God's love. And certainly, at least, I, I would say this is true in my experience, that this is the most difficult thing for modern people to come to terms with. And that is the reality of God's unconditional love. When you think about it seriously, it, it kind of came up, I don't know when it came up, but maybe in the homily yesterday, I can't, can't remember it all. But when you, when you really comprehend what love is, or maybe Sister mentioned it last night, to be so loved by God that even when you are planning to sin, even when you're sinning, he is loving you. And while we all say we want to find love, everybody wants to be discovered. You know, you want to be chosen. You want somebody to choose you. You want to be the most important person in someone's life, or you want to find the other one who's going to be the most important person in your life. In the heart of the monk or the nun, and I think we would have to say in the heart of the mystic or the saint, what crushes the spirit or the heart, and I say that as a positive thing, strange as that may sound, is not the remembrance of one's sins or the infidelities of the past, nor one's perpetual inability to, to become what one thinks one should become, never mind what God wants. What crushes us is really the reality of love because it's too much to bear to be that loved. And you know, when you think about when you want what you want in love, you want to be loved, but do you want to be that loved? Do you want to be loved so intensely that you don't have any privacy from it? Usually in married couples even, or people who are deeply in love, they need a breather once in a while. There's no breather from God. And in the monastery, 
God is always there. It, it, and this is why it's such a, an intense life. Not because of the austerities, though they may cause a certain amount of intensity, but it's that you can't escape God. You can't escape the truth that he loves you. There no, you, you don't take a vacation. It's always there. And this, the enormity of God's love, is what the early monks and nuns came to discover, and it created all kinds of difficulties for them. Not that they didn't want it, but they didn't know how to cope with it. And so the writings of Evagrius and Cassian and Antony and all the other, Palladius, all these people, uh, these are really about this issue. How can I become someone who is vulnerable to the reality of God's unconditional love? And because modern people are so um, susceptible to a sense of personal diminishment or anxiety or a sense that one is not really, um, um, what would I say, um, up to the task, it's very difficult for modern people to believe in God's unconditional love. Because everything you get, you get you've earned, right? I mean, you study hard, you, and you get good grades, and blah, 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 or you don't get good grades if you don't study, and then you have the emotions because you fall in love. You and what are most of the difficulties of young people today about? Almost always they're about their relationship with themselves and with others. And often it's about one's relationship with oneself. The monastic life, the, the, the spirituality of the desert is about how one, you might say, dialogues with oneself, with one's neighbor, in order to be free to dialogue with God. And so if you don't know how, if you don't know yourself, if you don't know how to talk to yourself and, and calm yourself down. Now I say calm yourself down because this is the one of the interesting things about uh, Cashin's conferences. That purity of heart there is often described as inner tranquility, inner peace, a kind of orderliness within. And so when the chaos comes up, you automatically become suspicious that you might not be seeing yourself as you truly are, and maybe you're hiding behind something, a fear, a passion. And so this, this tradition is about sorting one's life out under the guidance of God's grace, the teachings of the church, the grace of the sacraments, and the life of prayer. One's mind has to learn to be tranquil within. There has to be a certain peace of soul. And that comes largely because we believe that there is a future for us. St. Thomas, in his treatment of the virtue of hope, is very strong on saying that if you are a person of hope, that is, if you believe in God's future for you, and by God's future for you, he doesn't mean you know, getting your law degree or becoming a, a successful surgeon. He means eternal bliss the beatific vision, ultimate happiness. If you believe in that and you hope in that without any hesitation, two things are going to happen within you. That is that you are going to live with a certain confidence. That is, there's a strength that, okay, I've messed up again, but I'm, because of God's unconditional love, I'm going, I'm going forward again. But with also the, the confidence comes a contentment. That is, and this is again one of the themes of the little book that you have, it's okay to be who you are, and it's okay to stop pretending. Just admit it. Now, I don't think you have to put up a billboard and tell everybody else what you really are, uh, although some people may suspect already 
especially if you're from the East Coast. I, I think all West Coast people are nicer. I said this at breakfast, you know, you're all nicer people. You smile and you're kind. You know, we're all snarky and horrible. I, I, um, when I'm in the Midwest or the West, uh, I, I have to get back home and go into a store where some people are, are not nice, you know? I mean, because until they snarl at me a little, I'm not happy. I, it's just... <laughs> I'm not saying that you have to tell everybody your, your certainly not your sins, but the truth, but, but you have to live with, the, with yourself, you see? So that this tradition really is about um, how a life of silence, reflection, prayer, uh, and the sacraments will lead us to this, um, really it's a spiritual freedom is, 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 is the best way to put it, wherein I can begin to believe that God loves me as I am, and therefore one begins to have the courage to take the journey into the very difficult land of caring for others. Now, when I say caring for others, I'm not talking about working in a soup kitchen. Not that I'm against that. I mean, I think if you want to volunteer with the Missionaries of Charity, Yahoo, go to it. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about caring about for others in the sense of being disposed to them with a loving heart because the love that you have experienced frees you from constantly having to get it from everybody else. Hungry, desperate for people to approve, to accept. Rejection, disapproval, um, criticism. These are very difficult things for modern people. And if you talk to a therapist or therapists as I often have to do because of people that I'm seeing in spiritual direction, they'll tell you that this, this is what most of their, their time is spent with in talking to individuals. The pain of being either uh, unacceptable or rejected or misunderstood. And often enough, there is a large dose of betrayal in it because, of course, human relationships are fallible. They're passing. And so there is a lot of human suffering that one has to take into oneself if one is going to find one's way to God. Why is that? Well, <laughs> it's, it's because of the mystery of the cross. Christ takes on a human nature to make it possible for us to understand how we are to live our human nature. And this is the wonder of the sacraments, because in the sacraments, whether it's the, 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 eight, the, the, the seven sacraments or the divine office or the various uh, celebrations of the church, which are sacramental with a small s. We're always meeting Christ. And my human nature meets his. And when our human natures encounter one another, a communion is set in motion. And that communion of our human natures gives me access to his divine nature. And so Christ is in all of these instances drawing me into his own life. And what is his life? A life of relationship with the Father in the Holy Spirit. And so we, we often short circuit. Um, how will I put this now? Let me think. Yes. Our prayer is very often about asking God to do something for us or to us. But in fact, the way in which grace works is that grace does not answer those kinds of petitions necessarily, though sometimes it does, but it answers the deeper yearning. That is, it draws us into his life, which is about his relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So that there is a, you might say, there is a mysticism in the life of prayer, in the life of the sacraments, that we undervalue. So often when we speak of going to uh, Holy Communion, you know, we say, 
I received communion, Christ came to me. Uh, that's true. But as I often try to say to people, who's receiving whom? Are we receiving Christ or is he receiving us? And if he is receiving us into his, if our human natures have communion with his, and his human nature is hypostatically joined to the divine nature, he is taking us into Trinitarian life. And we might be snuggled up trying to get a little consolation or deciding what he should give us rather than letting us be taken by him where he wants us to go. So that this, this, this very practical uh, spirituality of the desert, uh, it has wings. And it will take you where, you where you want to go. Even if you don't want to go into a monastery, I'm not suggesting that you should. Though Bernard of Clairvaux thought everybody should become a monk or a nun. Uh, today he would be thought a bit crazy, but you know. This is how Passion sums up the, the struggle to gain a, a pure heart. He says, this should be our principal effort then. This should be constantly pursued as the fixed goal of our heart, so that our mind may always be attached to divine things and to God. Whatever is different from this, however great it may be, is nevertheless to be judged as secondary and even as base, and indeed as harmful. Nothing is more important than having a broken, humbled heart open to God so that he can repair the damage and make us great in his love. Thank you. Questions? Um, earlier you uh, were talking about, uh, I put it this way, cultivation of the soul. It's, uh, you know, uh, the monastic life is a cultivation of the soul. Um, and you're saying that there's some some people are called to do certain things and some are not. You know, like you were saying, you, you, you thought you were called to be a saint, but you... Well, I think I was called to be a saint. I, I, I didn't become one, <laughs> but I think that was the plan. Yeah, <laughs> but so my question is, is, how do you know that there are uh, uh, certain things that God has for you in store uh, and you just don't try hard enough or you don't work hard enough? Why do you want to know what God wants? Why do I want to know what yeah. God wants? Because... God wants it for me. Okay, and, and do you think that this thing called a head, there's a brain in there, uh, do you think that that might be the way in which you're supposed to try to figure it out to the best of your ability? In other words, I don't think we can expect that God, we are not voluntarists. God is not a will with a plan, with slides, you know, that he could show you what you're supposed to do. And, you know, I, I put it this way, but it's maybe too irreverent. It's sort of like pinning, pinning, you know, the game, pinning the tail on the donkey. What does God want? You know, what, should I be a priest? Should I be a nun? Should I get married? Should I be single? Should I be da da da? It's not like that. God is someone. He's an intellect, and He's thinking about us and talking to us, and 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 so our lives unfold. And I don't think you can call God to account and say, "Tell me what you want me to do." He does tell you but not by your, you might say, demanding it, because you may want to know it in the way you want to know it instead of the way he wants to know it. God is not a being, you know? Oh, maybe that's too radical. I, don't know. I was interested in how you were discussing how 
God's love as opposed to your own sins can be the most difficult thing to cope with. Oh, yeah. Um, and I was also thinking about this in the context of trust. I wanted to get your thoughts. Um, do you think this difficulty can also come from a lack of trust that he loves us or perhaps a lack of trust that his love will give us freedom? I do. Um, for most people, it seems to, to find its root in our relationship with ourselves, that we, we come into, um, well, I suppose it begins in puberty and later on, or maybe earlier, but, but uh, we think we're, we're flawed in some way and we're not adequate to the task. Now, it doesn't help that, you know, very often in the modern world, parents set high expectations for children, sometimes even in kindergarten. You know, they're plotting what schools they're going to go to and all this sort of thing. But the fact is that I think most of it is discontent with the self, within the self. And if from the earliest ages one, is, one has access in faith to the life of prayer and sacraments, it can help tremendously. I mean, I'm sure that my parents messed me up uh, totally, uh, uh, you know, yeah, 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 they did for sure. I can tell you that. Uh, but I believed they had. I mean, they, you know, I lived a life of faith, and so even though I thought that, um, you know, I didn't agree with them on everything and all that, um, it was my relationship with God that saved me. Much like what Sister Marie was talking about, you know, she met this woman, and God, God saved me because I believed. But I, it took me a lot of years to figure out why I didn't like myself. What helped was when other people didn't like me. <laughs> oh, wait, let me, let me get somebody else first. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, thank you so much, Father Jones. Uh, but I was, so, uh, you know, the first part of what you're talking about, about the importance of humility mm -hmm. um, and how humility is just total honesty with who you are, um, and you gave the example of the woman um, coming to you. And so I was wondering, how do you deal with the fact that people might put their faith in the image of this holy, virtuous saint, when they shouldn't, but that's what they do? How do you uh, both be honest with who you are and you know how imperfect we are, while at the same time not scandalizing people and trying to lead them close to Christ. Yes. No, I think we can't control other people. And other people will always have, even, even, if, even if you're living completely authentically, there will be people, they will see you according to their own needs and desires. See, this is one of the things that the desert fathers and mothers discovered early on, was that no matter how authentic they were, that others could see them and misjudge that. So people could say, oh, he's very holy. All the while, you know, that's not true. And you can't, you don't go around proving yourself. You have the freedom to simply be and let them be. And if they draw the wrong conclusions, that's their problem. Now, there are times when you have to, uh, you know, correct them. But usually, and maybe, yeah, not always. You know, it depends on the situation. That would, of course, require a certain amount of prudence. But no, I don't think you, 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 you can't correct people's misjudgments of you. It's a fool's errand, because it's trying. This this connects with something I'm going to talk a little bit about this afternoon, which is aver uh, not avarice, but um, um, vainglory and and control, because the temptation to control is very big in this whole process. So, kind of a follow up to that. Um, I don't know if you're this, but I was curious 
why do you think it is that legitimately holy people never will always say they're not holy? Like there's numerous examples of saints throughout history. Some people say, oh, you're a saint, you're holy. And oh, it's, it's all, it's in the, in fact, sister quoted one or two of them last night. Because they're telling you the truth. They see themselves in reality compared to God. Remember, they're looking at things from God's point of view. No one is holy but God. And, and, and this is colored by the fact that the great saints, especially the more modern saints where we have more of their actual sayings, they're quicker to say this. And what they will say is very often that they see that they're capable of every evil possible. Even St. Therese says this, if you remember in her little autobiography, she says that she realized that she was capable of the worst terror, the most, the, the, the worst sins, and that she would really deserve to go to hell. So they're talking from one context, we're reading it from another, you see? Because when you look at it from the point of view of, of the beatific vision, we're all, we're all terrible sinners. No one, because there's a, the, they also see the gratuity of God's love. They did nothing to achieve it. It's purely and simply because he is love and he looks on you and loves you. Why did he choose me? I don't know. He did. And sometimes I, I've had this thought not infrequently in airports because that's about the most um, worldly experience that I have uh, outside of the Priory. I mean, uh, and I often think when I'm trying to be recollected and prayerful, and I, the thought has come to me many, many times as I look around, how many other people in this airport are thinking about you, about God, and trying to adore you and, and be, you know, I, the world is so far away from that, you see. And yet, I couldn't say that I'm holy or a saint. I, I would say, worst sinner, I'm not that humble yet. I'm not the worst sinner, but I'm probably among the top 10. <laughs> you had another question. Oh, sorry. First her and then you. So, Clara, what does it mean to be a daughter or a son, like in, in the way that what? That's kind of a broad question, but like, I'm just thinking about like our relationship with God as, as daughter and son, and how the father, how the fathers would, would talk about it. I don't. Uh, yeah, the question is how um, how would the desert fathers talk about being a daughter and a son? Like of of God. Of God. Being adopted. Um, I really don't know of any text where they say that they presume that through baptism we are a daughter or a son of God. But I don't uh, now there might be something that I don't know, but I, I don't know that that's a topic that's dealt with. Yeah. And then. Can you expand a little bit when you were talking about the values of false self, uh, what you meant by sadness? I read a little bit in the book. But I didn't quite understand when you were talking about that she chose sadness. No, uh, Cashin adds to the list of seven principal faults an eighth, which is sadness. Mm -hmm. And that what he means by that is when you choose to be down on yourself and let life conquer you, as a, not as a kind of chemical imbalance, but as a choice that you make. In other words, some people choose to be sad. And this is sad about the spiritual things. Let's say that you have a terrible habit of lying or that you have a lot of anger. And eventually you just, 
I've, I've tried and I'm not any better. I, da, 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 da. You, you, you allow this to weigh you down. And he, of course, believes that this is um, a disorder in the spiritual life, to choose to be sad, to allow oneself to go down that. What he's really talking about is the fortitude that is needed to be an athlete of God. There was one question here, too, and then, oh, yes, you. Oh. So, uh, Father, you mentioned that the church, you said that the church is not about behavior modification, but rather it's about a relationship with God. Right. And, uh, but, you know, we, we do desire to be more holy. So how can we use that relationship with God to, like, you know, reach, like, a, to be, become more holy, rather in our behavior or in our heart? And also, like, how can we sometimes discern whether what we're trying to improve is to appear to be better, or is it to actually be better? The question is, uh, I said earlier that very often when you try to, that I said that Catholicism is not a religion of behavior modification, but one of relationship. Therefore, how do we actually reform our behavior is what you're asking, isn't right, it? Right, through that relationship. Yeah, because the relationship is with, with, with Jesus Christ, and he has the power to take our nature and to elevate it to the supernatural. So it's, it's through the, 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 it's the, the only means we have is the sacred humanity of Jesus Christ to lead us from misbehavior to proper behavior, from a relationship that is wrongful with God to one that is rightful. So it all, it all depends upon our relationship with Jesus Christ, and that always has to be guided by the church. And it, it's fed by the sacraments, the life of prayer, the life of discipline. You can't chart it out. There's no way. But, and sometimes it takes a whole lifetime to conquer a, a disordered passion. So if you're angry, now anger is an interesting problem because uh, the, the, the fathers of the desert and the fathers of the church in general, they see anger as a universal problem. You know, sometimes you meet people and they say, well, I'm not angry. And I'm always thinking, I don't buy it. Uh, you know, everybody's got anger. You may not... You may not be in touch with it yet, but when it explodes, I'm, I don't want to be around. You can't get rid of it. No spiritual writer tells you how to get rid of anger. They tell you how to live with it, how you get distance from it. This brings up this monastic virtue of, uh, of apatheia, that is passionlessness. So even when your anger returns in your emotions, it doesn't mean that you have to engage with it in your will or your intellect. I mean. So, I mean, it's, it's all due to the grace of Christ. Yeah. Dr. Lawrence, you want to Okay. Um, so after, uh, I believe you talked about uh, how uh, part of the monastic life or the goals is to see things, see people from God's point of view. You said, uh, let people be themselves. Could you elaborate on what that means, let people be themselves? Oh, yeah, I could. Uh, the question is, uh, I said that... Um, that, we, that, 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 that true humility is not only being yourself, but letting other people be themselves. Well, can I elaborate on it? Oh, I've been a Dominican for, what, 60 years or some more, probably. Uh, the misery of daily life, living with other human beings. I mean, that's, uh, here it is. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we live with people. Now, do I love them? Oh, yeah, I do. Uh, do I like them all? I live in a community of 30. I don't know how many I would have chosen if I really had a choice, you know? But I don't get a choice. 
And isn't that true of everyone's life? You end up someplace where you have all these people. Now, of course, Cashin deals with this uh, because I've often said, especially when I was young, the problem we have, the Dominican order is great and the buildings are fantastic. It's the people. If you could just clear out the people and live in these beautiful buildings, I would be thrilled. I could be peaceful and happy. But the fact is that there are people. And like me, uh, they can be difficult. So what is it like? It's enduring. It's enduring the difficulty of living with people that either you don't like or you don't understand. I mean, why does the person next to me in choir always have a way of clearing his throat? It's not, <clears throat> it's, <laughs> you know, the first 10 years, oh, okay. Second 10 years, and then it's, it's like, you know, I can fix that. <laughs> Stop him breathing. <laughs> I mean, yes, life, you see, this tradition is about enduring. You have to endure the difficulties of life. And in, in our lives, as in yours, it's enduring people. And, not, and, I, and I have to come to see that the fact that this man annoys me with his clearing of the throat, that's really not his problem. That's me. That's my problem. And the tradition tells us very clearly, when things get under your skin, know right away, know immediately that the problem is in me. Because every time I invite others to change, I am turning in some way from love of Christ to love of myself. I want this guy to be what I, in fact, this particular person um, uh, I've known for many years. And I've sometimes fantasized, oh, when we were much younger, that he should be sent home to his mother, uh, oh my new, but in pieces, you know, send a leg today, <laughs> tomorrow. I mean, you know, I've dismembered him, I've fixed his throat, I've made suggestions, I've put lozenges at his place, I've done everything. <laughs> but that's my problem. And, I, and, and you see, in this tradition, I have to face that. And that's what it's like. It, and he's not going to change. I have to change. So every time I invite someone to change, I have to go to Christ and ask him, how am I supposed to change? And the horrible thing is he tells me. Thank you, Father. Yeah.